good to um, take a time out from the frantic pace of life and just say, God is real. This is, this is the moment to remind ourselves of the, the truth that the Lord is what this is all about and um, what life is all about. So um, it's good to be here. It's good to worship with you guys. Good to come and to recalibrate and uh, kind of get right about that again in our lives. Well, let's uh, read from the book of Judges this morning. That's a, it's always a dicey thing to say as a pastor. We're going to read from Judges. There's a lot of crazy stuff in Judges. Um, this is kind of crazy, but not maybe as crazy as some other parts. Uh, Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. So, um, let's read together. Early in the morning, Jeroboam and his Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into the hand, into their hands, or Israel would boast against me my own strength to save me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So twenty-two thousand men left. While ten thousand remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, you shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, you shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Friends, word for us today. Thank you, Lord, for your powerful word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. Thank you that we have the privilege of reading what you have spoken to people down to the generations. Thank you that when we pray, Lord, that we sometimes pour our hearts out to you, and sometimes we, we receive answers from you as we read your word, and you, you speak in our hearts words of comfort or encouragement, of challenge, always of grace. We're thankful, God, for your presence, and we love you. We pray that you will speak to us in these words today, and that you will receive honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am back from Israel. I'm deeply grateful to have been able to um, participate on this trip. It was not a uh, the normal pilgrimage type trip, which uh, I've done before, which some of you have done with me, and which we hope to do again uh, in the future. Uh, but it, it was more of a listening tour. I got to spend time with about 16 different groups of people who represented uh, folks from all the way from the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs down to uh, uh, folks who uh, were uh, feeling very not Ministry of Foreign Affairs like the people in the Palestinian uh, refugee camp 
people who had things to say. So it was fascinating to kind of hear all these different takes, and I certainly don't uh, want to set myself up as anybody who has any sense of authority on the situation in the Middle East, but I just want to share what I learned and, um, and uh, share with you some of the pictures, and it's just a really powerful trip, um, and uh, that'll be this Thursday, so I hope that you'll uh, come up for that if it's possible in your schedule. Well, today is our final uh, uh, chapter, our final uh, sermon in our series, our message, uh, Jaw Droppers. We've been looking at uh, the Bible from um, a bunch of different passages in which you go, really? <laughs> what? Is that true? Is that possible? Is that what that really says? And uh, today we look at the story of Gideon. Uh, the story of Gideon happens in the hill country north of Jerusalem. Um, Right near Mount Gilboa, and what's really cool is in my mind right now, I can picture Mount Gilboa because I just drove past it. I mean, I just drove up the Jordan River Valley, and we looked to the left, and our guide said, there's Mount Gilboa right there. Um, lots of things happen on Mount Gilboa. It's the place of the final battle of my son Jonathan and the Israelites against the Philistines. Um, but um, uh, besides that, it's the site of uh, what went down with Gideon. So, rolling hills, they, uh, they're about the size of maybe like the Berkshires, uh, some of the lower hills in West Virginia, but there's no, there's no uh, trees on these hills. Very, very rocky, um, just a little bit of grass here and there, um, just really barren. And uh, fascinating, fascinating place, and I um, uh, hope we get to go someday. God, God provides sometimes. Well, I want to set the scene of uh, what is going on here. Uh, this is happening during the time of the Judges. And during the time of the Judges, Israel was in a place where the, the Bible says over and over again, every person did what they thought was best in their own eyes. Now, just think about society and what it would be like if every person did what they thought was best in their own eyes. That would not... I, I would be scared to live in a society like that. I, in a certain sense, we do a little bit live in a society like that. And there are consequences to that. Uh, but this was a really anarchical kind of time. I mean, people kind of did whatever they wanted. It was also a very decentralized uh, time. It wasn't like, we're the nation of Israel. We all kind of uh, um, connect to each other. Whether you're way in the south or way in the north, you feel like, oh, we're all brothers. Instead, it was everybody was really kind of connecting to their own tribe. And they didn't really hang out with other tribes too much. They knew they were there. They weren't really focused on being together. There was no prophet or king who was unifying them. Israel, during this time, would rebel against God. They'd begin to chase after the idols of their neighbors. They'd begin to look around and say, you know what, our God, hmm, I can't see him, I can't smell him, taste him, touch him, feel him, anything. I, I, is he really real? Because they have a God who is right there. And you can worship that God, and you can participate in. They claim that God is strong too. And so the Israelites began to put their trust in other things besides God. They, they began to look around and say, Are there other things that we can trust besides God? And friends, when I read, when I see something like that, that's always a reflective moment. Am I putting my trust in other things besides God? And, and I want to ask you that question. How are you doing on that? How are you doing on putting your trust in other things 
besides God. It's a temptation for us all. Well, during this time of the judges, God would allow them to kind of go their own way for a while, and then he would bring in another nation to discipline them, to kind of hold them down and oppress them until they would finally acknowledge, you know, the only God that's going to get us out of this is the real God. And so they would cry out to the Lord, and he would then come and rescue them. And the way he would rescue them would be through the form of a judge, a person who would step forward, who was called by God, and would lead the people against the current oppressors and bring freedom once again to the Israelites. And they'd have a, a freedom for a while, and then when the judge died, they would go back to their old ways, and the cycle would start again. That's really kind of what's happening in this time of the judges that Gideon is in. So he's one of the judges. He's one of the people that um, is called forth by God to do this work. That's interesting. He's um, living in a time where the Midianites have attacked them. And the Midianites are uh, a nomadic group from the east, and they have come in, and they have, uh, it says in other parts of the, the chapter here, they would just come in and take all their crops and their animals and things like that and the Israelites had sort of um, gone to living in caves and, and camping out in the wilderness and trying to avoid the Midianite uh, um, armies. Well, God sends an angel and the angel comes to Gideon of all people and Gideon, when he hears the angel, says come on, I, don't you know who I am? I'm, in the, I'm from the weakest tribe, the tribe of Manasseh and I'm from the weakest, least important clan in Manasseh. My family is the least important. And I happen to be the least important person in my family. So you have really got the wrong person here. But that's, that's what God does. God uses all sorts of people. He even uses unqualified people. That's our first jaw dropper. That God will use even an utterly unqualified person. Now that's not what God always does. Sometimes God uses a very qualified person. We see in the Bible that God uses the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a person who was as highly trained as you could be. He was an incredibly smart scholar. He had studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He had essentially gone to the Harvard of his day. And he was a smart guy. And he wrote half the New Testament. And uh, so God uses qualified people and unqualified people. A little story for you. Once uh, John Wesley, who was, by the way, a really smart guy, the guy who uh, founded Methodism had gone to Oxford, he was a teacher there, and uh, he was uh, speaking one time, and, and somebody kind of thought that he was being pompous, so they wrote him this letter, and they said, uh, you know, God doesn't need your pompous education. And uh, John Wesley wrote the guy on the back, he said, thank you very much, that's true, he also doesn't need your rampant ignorance. <laughs> Whoa! Favorite things about John Wesley is he didn't pull the punches, he just let it fly. So uh, God can use any of us. So if you happen to be a highly qualified person, great. God can use you. He might call you to be used for something. But if you happen to be a person who you think or others think are profoundly unqualified, don't worry. God can use you. He can use you to help people grow and help people connect with God and find out the truth. So Gideon is unsure, and so he needs a sign, and so uh, the angel says, why don't you create an altar here, and we'll do a sacrifice, get it all set, and the angel touches it with uh, his rod, and it, it makes the whole thing uh, um, start on fire, and Gideon's like, whoa, I guess this is really real, and so uh, the angel says, okay, 
I want you to do is I want you to go out to um, uh, your dad's front yard there, and I want you to tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. And uh, he does it. He gets a couple guys, and he's not really, really confident, so he does it at night. But in the morning, everybody wakes up, and the altar of Baal is completely torn down, and the Asherah pole has been cut down. And you know what? People aren't happy when their gods get trampled on. I uh, occasionally see somebody struggling with something that kind of looks like their god, and uh, maybe it's money or power or something, and when somebody else comes by and tramples on it, you can kind of see them get all tense, you know? So they're mad, and it's a, it's a great little story. They say, let's get them. And Gideon's father, who had these idols in his front yard, says, well, wait a minute. If Baal's really real... Let's let Baal take care of him. So they're like, okay, Baal will take care of him. And they actually renamed him Jerob Baal, which means Baal will contend with you. And I bet Gideon kind of walked around with that name like, yeah, how did Baal contend with me? Not very well, because Baal's a, a non-god. And, uh, and um, so he's empowered by that. And he goes throughout the countryside. He goes to four other tribes. The, his own tribe, Manasseh, and also Asher, and Zebulun, and Naphtali. And he gets a bunch of guys together and says, you know, God has called me to uh, lead you to wipe out the Midianites. There's a whole load of them down in the valley. We know there's a whole bunch of them. They were, uh, they were described as thick as locusts, there, the Midianite army was. And their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. That's a lot. That's a lot of guys down there. The camels were kind of like tanks, you know. So, I mean, it was, it was scary to see all those guys down there. And uh, he, Gideon gets these people together, and he says, um, let's go take them on. But he's still nervous. He, we know from the text he has 32,000 guys. He's looking at his 32,000, and he's looking at all those Midianites. And so he says, God, I just, I just, can we just, please don't be insulted. I just want to be reassured again. And so he says, I'm going to put this fleece out. And would you make all the ground wet? dry, and, and uh, the next morning, all the ground is wet, but the fleece is dry. And then Gideon's like, that's really cool. Okay, uh, one more time. Can you make all the ground dry with the fleece soaking wet the next day? And the next day it happens. And Gideon, you know, sometimes we say we shouldn't test God, but Gideon, Gideon asks for that, and God honors it, and he builds his faith. So when that happens, Gideon's like, okay, this is real. We're really going to do this. And so I can imagine he's like pulling his plans together. He's getting all ready. Everything's ready to roll. And then God brings the jaw God says, wow, you've done a lot of planning. And you've really done a lot of good recruiting, Gideon. But there's one small problem. There's way too many soldiers here. You need to get rid of some of these guys. Now, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, just imagine that the United States was taken over by some foreign country and they had millions of soldiers, and we got our army together and we were going to fight them. And just before we went out, we sensed that God was saying, uh, I want you to get rid of most of those troops. I mean, the vast majority. I mean, like 99%. Some of them. We'll take them the other way. I, I would be like, that's insane. That's crazy. These people were putting their lives on the line. And to think about sending people home was, they had been brave enough to show up in the first place, but sending them home, that was, 
That was crazy. Gideon had been worried about whether or not he would have enough troops, and God was already planning how to ditch most of them. God realizes that if there is any chance that these troops might think that they pulled it off themselves, then they would take that credit for themselves and not give it to God, and God is not interested in them doing that. He knows their hearts. He knows that they've been a, a people that have continually rebelled against God. They've not really been doing things the way God has asked. They've outright worshipped foreign gods. And he says, you know what? God says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. Now, he's not saying, I can't deliver Midian into their hands. He's not talking about an inability on his part. He's saying, I can't do it in this way or they'll think that it's all about that. You know, um, God has uh, a lot of wisdom to not let us think it's all about us. We're so tempted sometimes to think it really is all about me. You know, sometimes we watch uh, television that says, you're worth it. Or, you're the center. You're the, you're the goal. You're the greatest. You're, you're the person it's all about. I make decisions for me, you know. And I look at those advertisements and I think, oh my goodness, this is like the exact opposite of what God calls us to. It's really all about God. Not all about us. And God wants them to know this. So, he starts in this reduction of forces. He says, Gideon, you got 32,000 soldiers. Why don't you go tell whoever's afraid that they can go home? Whoever's afraid can go home. Now, there's actually a precedent for this. Uh, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, verse 8, that um, when they were about to face battle, the officers should say, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home. So his fellow soldiers won't be disheartened as well. He understood that there's a certain level of, hey, if you're terrified, that's not really helping the other people feel really, you know, like ready to rock and roll. So, uh, so it's okay, in a sense, to go home. But it's, um, it's also interesting. Number one, all these disciples have been following Jesus, and then Jesus started to say some really challenging things. Really challenging things. Like, I've brought... I've come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Things like that. And people are like, well, this is, this is too much. And a whole bunch leave him, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, do you want to go away too? Of course, Peter says, where are we going? You have the words of life. You're the Messiah. So, this is one of those moments. Gideon says, okay, everybody who's afraid, go home. And 22 Give you an idea. Why don't we take him down to the spring, the spring of Herod, where you're at, and 
let them all drink from it, and I'll show you there who should stay and who should go home. Now, you read a bunch of, if you read a bunch of commentators about this, there's all sorts of arguments about uh, who who stayed and who went, like the style of drink, like the guys that said they went down and lapped like a dog, but it also says they brought their hand up, so the idea is maybe they're bringing it up like this, and, and people are not, we don't really know what it means, but some people say, well, it's the people who, the 300 that were chosen were the ones who were wise enough to be on guard. And so they, they didn't kneel all the way down and get into it. They were kind of like this, you know, and they, like that. And they, they, God chose them because they were smart enough to, you know, still be looking around so they wouldn't be caught off guard. And other commentators say, no, 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 it's uh, God down on their faces and laughed like a dog. That means they, they got all the way down and they put their head right in the street and they just used their hand like that. They were the ones that were all in. All the other guys were kneeling and, oh, look at what. But these guys were like, all in, let's do it. You know what I think? Nobody has any idea. We don't know. We don't know. We're not sure. And in fact, I don't even think it's all that important because remember, it's not really about who was smart enough to be alert or who was courageous enough to be all in. It's not about that. God's just using this little technique to say, Gideon, I'm just going to help you figure out the 300 guys that I want to go with you. And the other 9,700 can go home. And he says, Gideon, you do it, by the way. You go out there and tell the other 9,700, uh, you guys, you guys can all go home. Once again, each one of those steps is a, is a faith-building step. I mean, Gideon is not only making his own coffin, he's sealing it too, isn't he? I mean, this is Serious. He's like, he's digging his grave, he's doing everything. I mean, this has changed from being pretty crazy to being utterly ridiculous. 300 guys are left. If you do the math, that's less than 1%. Over 99% of the guys were sent home. And Gideon has to send them home himself. See, the real problem was not how ferocious and scary Midian is, that army out there that was facing them. They were only there because God had allowed them to be his instrument of discipline for Israel. God could take care of Midian at any time. He wasn't threatened by that. The real problem was Israel's leaning towards wanting to be self-sufficient. Their willingness to take the credit for themselves. And that is the root of idolatry, putting ourselves and our desires before God. David Jackman, the commentator, writes, that, after all, is the attraction of idolatry, isn't it? We imagine that we are in control and that the God whom we set up to worship is there to indulge our whims and fancies. So we exalt our wills above God's, and we refuse to let him be God in any practical way in our circumstances. This was the problem that Israel had encountered over and over again, and the only remedy is to have printed indelibly on our minds and hearts that this is not our own strength that has saved us. God, God knows, He knows we're so tempted to want to sort of do it on our own, to think, if I just get my technique right, if I just get better at that, if I just work the system the right way, and get a little lucky, and work hard, maybe I can get ahead. Maybe I can do it on my own. 
Instead, God drags it down to a situation where there is no possible way that 300 people could overcome this army. 300 soldiers is not just challenging or difficult. It's utterly, utterly ridiculous. Now, if you're thinking in your mind, weren't there 300 Spartans out there? Didn't I see a movie about the 300 that came up? You probably did, and if you did, forget it. It's not good history. <laughs> there were 300 Spartans that fought at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC. They're also backed up with about 4,000 other guys. And they did do an amazing thing. They did hold off the Persian army for about six days at a very narrow strip of beach that they could easily defend on all sides. And they were, um, they were amazing. They also lost all their lives. They were defeated, but their delaying tactic allowed the Athenian army to get it together to defeat the Persians later on. It was an amazing thing. Nobody should downplay the courage of that event. But friends, these 300 guys are in an utterly different situation. Because the way this battle is going to go down is no valor and amazing courage and strength and standing in the gap. and No. They go up on the surrounding mountainsides. Their weapons are a torch, a big clay jar, and their voices. They smash the jars, they light the torches, and they shout, For the sword of the Lord and Gideon. Ah! And the Midianites down in the valley, they freak out. They start killing each other. And they start running. And then the Israelites start chasing them. And they're able to wipe them out. Now, it's fascinating. As they chase them, they call out more Israelites. You know, isn't it interesting? Like, when things are really flowing your direction, everyone comes out. You know, like, hey, help us defeat the Midianites. They're on the run. They're killing each other. We're, we're just kind of like in the wiping out process. People are like, uh, okay, I'll join you for that. But the original, you know, would you like to be one of the 300 guys who goes against the biggest army in the world? You go for it. You do that. I'll, I'll just wait back here and watch that. <coughs> People come out of the woodwork and they defeat the, the Midianites. 300 against thousands, tens of thousands, maybe more. It's crazy unless God is part of the equation. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 12 9, where God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. In weakness, not in God's weakness. He's saying, My power, the power of God, is made perfect when you are weak. When you are feeling weak and overwhelmed, my power can step in and do all that is necessary. That's true because God is a God of grace and mercy. He gives us more than we can ever ask or imagine, precisely because He perfectly understands us and He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He gets the big picture and He knows what needs to be done. If you come upon a small child who's feeling overwhelmed and scared, maybe they've been scared by a loud noise or something like that. Are they in danger? No. But are they whimpering and crying? Yes. What do you do? Buck it up. No, no, no. You, you go to that child. You comfort them. It's going to be okay, buddy. It's going to be okay, buddy. It'll be all right. You encourage them. Why? Because you know the big picture. And you know that you can keep them safe. And you know you can protect them. And that's what God does for us. Except on a much more grand scale. When we are whimpering because of the challenges of life, God can sweep in. In our weakness, His power can be made perfect. He's not scared to make us uncomfortable. Have you noticed that about God? 
God is not scared to make us uncomfortable. Because he has great plans for us that we would become great, not great in the eyes of the world, but great in the sense of great and Christ-like. Great followers of God, great lovers of God. If I said to you, you know what, I really, this is going to be great. Why don't you train to run a marathon? You know, and, and I know it's going to be a lot of hard work, but you really, you'll be so proud of yourself when it's done. You, you would be. It'd be awesome. And would it have come with, with lack of comfort? You better believe it. There's tons of time you would not be comfortable. But it would be worth it. That's the same thing in our Christian life. God is not interested in keeping us comfortable. He's interested in growing us and usually growing us means pushing us outside of our comfort zones. He's not interested in our plans either. Are you tempted to make plans and then bring them to God and say, would you uh, rubber stamp these, please? Would you sanctify these? Would you give your power to these plans that I've made, oh God? And there's a huge, huge difference between us writing our own agenda and then trying to do it on God's behalf to please God. There's a big difference between that and saying, God, what's your agenda? What's your plan for my life? You show me. I'll, I'll do it. I'll head in the direction you want me to go. Rather than telling God what to do, he's not really all that interested in our plans. God sometimes asks us to step out of faith. To step out way far. Gideon stepped out in some pretty powerful ways in this story. But we have to step out too. He calls us to say, share our faith with others. If we have a real relationship with God, we're called by Him to share that with other people. I, I want to ask you a question here that I want to keep on asking. It's this. Who have you shared your faith with? And who have you invited to church this week? You know, those are challenging questions. And they're questions that cause you to step out in faith. But friends, wow, God is calling us to do it. God is encouraging us to say, be a witness for who he is. And draw people into the house of God. Help them come worship the one who is really, really worthy of worship. See, we're all so tempted to worship other things. And guess what? We're just made to worship. That's how that's who we are as human beings. We're made to worship. And so we will worship. We will worship something every single week. The only question is, what will it be? Will it be God? How hope it's true for each of us that it will be. And that we will help others come into that realization that worshiping God is where it's at. This is the best. This is our connection to reality. This is our our, our reality check. God calls us to step out of faith in that way. He also wants to receive the appropriate credit. God wants to get credit where credit is due. Now, it's not because he's hungry for recognition or he's some person who's desperately blowing his horn because he wants to be seen by others. No, no, no. God wants to get the credit because he's God and he's the only one who deserves the credit. The credit is something that 
we like to take for ourselves, or we like to shower upon people that we want to make heroes, or we want to look at certain institutions and say, yeah, they, they, they deserve credit. But friends, the only ones who deserve credit, the only one who deserves credit is God. He is great and mighty and powerful, and whatever it is that is going well, we can attribute it to Him. And challenges as well are sometimes sent by Him. And no matter what goes down, God is the one who ought to receive, receive credit. He deserves all credit. John 15, 5, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey, look, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I remain in you, then you'll produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then we remember the, the words that Angel Gabriel said to Mary, with all things, with God, all things are possible. With Jesus, anything is possible, but apart from him, we've got nothing. Whatever our grand plans are, whatever our hopes and dreams, if it's without Jesus, it's nothing. It's going to come to naught. It's just going to be uh, a little blip in the story of history. But if we follow God, then what He will bring about and what He will give credit for will be awesome. Transformed lives. People around us change from people of rage and anger, addiction and frustration. People who are changed into life-giving, life-offering, wonderful people who have the chance to change, reach out and change other people's lives as well. It's the upside down way that God works. The more we try to grasp, the more we lose it. The more we take his plan, the more we find it. I, uh, I just, as you know, I was in Israel and I heard so many people doing so many good things. It was really interesting. People trying to work for peace, people trying to work for justice, people trying to be fair and honest. From all different sides, so many fascinating takes on a very, very complex situation. But there was one shining point, one high point. There was a pastor there, Stephen Corey. Pastor Stephen Corey was running a little church in the middle of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, which is the Muslim sector. He was reaching out to Muslims, and he was calling them to start a relationship with Christ. And several people had, had, were, had started, and it was a really spirit-filled place. And he told us this story just last week or the week before now. He had gone to the house of a, a, a mother, a Muslim mother, whose son had been handicapped uh, from, from birth and had some real severe restrictions. The last time the, the boy had stood and had focused his eyes and had smiled and been somewhere around age one, and then everything just kind of went downhill from there. Stephen went and went with a couple people, and they were there and he said, do you mind if we pray for your son? And they, she said, sure. And he prayed. And during that time of prayer, that 11-year-old boy stood up. He could balance on Stephen's two fingers. And he focused his eyes and he looked and he smiled. And his mother was just freaking out. This is awesome. This is amazing. And later that night, Stephen got a call from some of the elders in the community saying, He's headed down there soon to have that conversation with them. 
in the midst of all the chaos and craziness, I'm looking at that guy and I'm saying, he has the Holy Spirit and he's showing up and he's, he's not solving it all. He's just saying, I've got something to offer, which is amazing. And friends, that's what we have too. We have the, the power of the Holy Spirit. We have God living in us. And we have that to offer to our community. And sometimes we lose that vision. I, I, Tom Holland and I were talking the other day, and we had uh, been to an event, and, and Tom was saying to me, I was just looking around thinking of all the, the folks who don't know Jesus. And my heart was just going out and wanting them to know Christ. And I was really convicted by that, because I was there too, and I wasn't thinking about that. I was, I was, just, I was just hanging out. But Tom had this heart his heart for Christ. And I thought, yes, that's the heart I want too. That's the heart I think he wants all of us to have. To look out and say, who doesn't know Jesus? I have the good news. I have the words of life to share with that person. Friends, the story of Gideon is not a story to make us think that we shouldn't try and shouldn't prepare. It's not a story to make us think that if we are prepared, that we're not qualified, we're overqualified. No, no, no. It's just a story about where the real power is. And the real power is with God. And so this morning I just ask you very simply, what are you afraid of? What are you waking up in the middle of the night worried about? It's on your mind, it's a person, maybe it's a condition, maybe it's a situation. What is overwhelming you? I want to just declare to you that God is enough. That God can work through you in any situation. God can meet you there. God can help you through that. The real power is not in our ability to somehow work the system. It's in God. Turn to Him for your comfort and your help. And on the other hand, what are you tempted to think you've got control of? And what are you tempted to think that you can work it out yourself? And what are you tempted to think, you know, really where the safety is. Whatever that is, friends, it's a lie. It's a lie. You have control only because God has allowed a certain amount of control. At this time, He has all the control. He is the one that is trustworthy there. Don't believe the lie. Trust in Him, not in anything else. It's interesting, isn't it? Some of us need to be comforted. Some of us need to be confronted. And God can do that from the same story in the scripture. I love that. Let's pray. God, thank you for getting in for the fact that he was honest and being nervous. And yet you used him, God, in a powerful way to deliver his people. Thank you for you use us, whether we're qualified or not. Comfort us as we face great fears. Help us to know that you're there. You can handle it. And Lord, confront us where we are tempted to set up our own idols of power and control, our own agendas, our own plans. And even if we try to sanctify it by bringing it to you and asking you to bless it, Lord, put that down. Let us instead 
approach you humbly and say, what is your will, Lord? Because you are the great security, the great power. We want to be connected to you. Oh God, work in our hearts this day. Wherever we are, we have jaw-dropping things that we do, but it's Thank you.